Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 334. It's titled, Should You Invest in Farmland? About 10 years ago, LaPrille and I bought an 80-acre farm in Teton Valley. It was a beautiful location. I have mentioned this farm in the past on the podcast as well as in my book. Some of the challenges that we've had with it, particularly the gravel pit that sprung up across the street. I sold half the farm, all the outbuildings, the pastures, the house, in 2016, broke even, and then kept 40 acres, which we've held for the past five years. I make a little bit of income on it, not much, about $15 per acre to lease it to a local farmer that I know that first had planted barley on it and then in the last several years has planted hay. My yield's about 0.5%. I like owning this piece of land because I don't have to do anything. The taxes are low. The farmer farms it. Yeah, I don't make much money off of it. But the idea was to eventually sell it as property prices go up. Not because farm income is going up, because typically farmland goes up in value if farm income is going up. But in this valley that overlooks the Teton mountain range, there have been a lot of people wanting to buy property there in the last year as the pandemic hit. And there's a shortage of supply. I got a call last week that the owner that bought our farm, and I've been carrying the note on it, is ready to sell and wanted to know if I wanted to list our property for sale. I said, sure, because prices have doubled from my cost in this particular piece of ground. Now, that's just one way to go about farm land investing. You could call it a higher and better use way. The true value is in the speculative land prices, not from farmers, but from others that want to move to a beautiful valley. There are other ways to invest in farmland. There are farmland real estate investment trusts. And I'll talk about one that I have owned and recently sold, at least the common stock shares. Something that has happened in the last four or five years are crowdfunding farmland investing platforms, such as AcreTrader, Farm Together. These platforms give individual investors the opportunity to participate in farmland investing, own a percentage of an LLC that in turn owns an operating farm. I was intrigued by a number of statements on AcreTrader's website and Farm Together about farmland investing. Here's what AcreTrader says. 
With a growing global population and shrinking U.S. farmland acreage, the laws of supply and demand are clearly in favor of farmland investing. As a result, farmland has consistently beat other asset classes over time. Here's what it says on Farm Together's website. The increasing scarcity of farmland and its lack of correlation with other asset classes makes it an exceptionally strong diversification tool for virtually any portfolio. This has driven institutions to significantly increase their investments in farmland over the last 30 years. Is farmland scarce in the U.S.? And if so, why? And does that mean demand for agricultural products will exceed supply, pushing up the value of farm income and prices? Here's what Acre Trader says. Perhaps more impressive is the consistency of farmland returns over time. While the value of gold or stock markets can go down over 40% or 50% in a single year, farmland returns have been positive every year since 1990, the first year of the index. Farm Together says farmland has low volatility as compared to most other asset classes. It provides stability for investors, especially during adverse market conditions. The Nikra Farmland Index hasn't had a negative year since 1991. Here's the thing about farmland index has never had a negative year. Calendar year. In 2020, the Nikra Farmland Index returned 3.1%. That is income plus land appreciation. The farmland index was slightly negative for the year ending March 31st, 2020, but we're just going to look at calendar years. The reason why farmland and that particular index has low volatility is because farms are valued on an appraisal basis. We should never compare the volatility of an asset such as gold or stocks that are priced daily, if not minute by minute, to an asset class that's priced on an appraisal basis. The latter will always be less volatile than something that's valued more frequently. The other important thing when it comes to looking at performance of any asset class, particularly if a manager is saying it's outperformed every other asset class, is when do they start measuring it? The farmland index, the Nikra farmland index, began in 1991. That happened to be the bottom of the prices for farmland in the U.S. after it had sold off from 1980. It was a great time to start an index because it was at the very bottom. We need to look at returns over longer periods of time. In 1980, the average cropland real estate value per acre. And by cropland, this would be permanent crops such as pistachio and almonds, as well as row crops such as corn, but excluding pastures where farm animals are grazing. In 1980, that average cropland real estate value per acre was $1,800. By 1991, it had fallen to $1,200. And so about a 40% decline. Then we had a recovery. By 2006, farmland was selling at $2,300 per acre, and then it peaked in 2014 at about $4,019 per acre. Farmland hasn't done much since 2014. In 2020, it sold for $4,100 an acre. So if we just look at the returns of farmland over longer-term periods, 
From 1980 to 2020, farmland per acre has appreciated only 0.6% per year. That's a nominal. That's not the real return. Granted, from 1991, when that index started, to 2020, it's appreciated 4.3% per year. That's encouraging, especially because as an investor, you would get that plus income on the crops that were sold every year. That would be attractive. But since 2014, farmland has only appreciated 0.3% per year. So returns have been much lower. And if we look at what farms are earning from 2012 through 2020, the average commercial farm's income only grew 0.3%. And from 2012 to 2019, it was a negative 2.4%. What has been growing is direct government payments to farms. That increased at a 12% per year rate from 2012 to 2019. Now, it depends on the particular crop and the region. But when we look at some of the recent dynamics for farms, the last five to six years, it's not been great. Incomes have been flat and the value of the land has not appreciated. What is it that drives farmland returns? Well, again, we know it's the value of the land going up and then income that can be earned on that land. But what influences that income? Well, it's primarily driven by commodity prices and interest rates. If commodity prices for agricultural products are going up, then farms make more money. If interest rates are falling, farms make more money because debt service costs are lower. And then, as with any asset class, as interest rates go down, it can support higher valuations. Commodities go through long cycles, which are called super cycles. They can last from 20 to 70 years. The most recent commodity super cycle started in the year 2000 and ended in the 2011-2012 period. It was driven by China. China had a huge appetite for commodities, metals, energy, and even agriculture. And if you look at long-term trends of commodities, they tend to rise and fall together. Oftentimes, as Capital Economics points out, because there's a new technology or new investment, it starts an economic upswing. And that lifts demand for commodities to where the demand is greater than a supply because it takes time to build out supply. Then as supply comes online, the prices start to fall and the super cycle ends. We have been in a commodity bear market since 2012, except that we saw commodities jump up in the latter half of 2020. Oil, for example, is now $70 per barrel. It was negative back in May in an episode that we did on negative prices. There's some debate whether another super cycle has started. Clearly, commodities have benefited from China's stimulus and stimulus from other countries. But one of the headwinds against a super cycle is population growth around the world is slowing. And China is trying to shift their economic growth to where it's more consumer-driven rather than investment-driven. So there's not necessarily going to be this huge demand for industrial metals and things of that source. Now, there's some discussion 
regarding the electrification of automobiles and trucks. That will boost demand for industrial metals, such as copper and aluminum. But while you have that trend going in place, you also have a slowing China, and they tend to offset. We'll see. It's hard to accurately predict these things over a longer term. One of the things, though, that impacts agriculture with the transition to electric vehicles is potentially less demand for biofuels, which are are made from agricultural products, corn and others. If there's a higher demand for electric vehicles, then potentially there's less demand for biofuels, which would reduce the demand for that crop. The bottom line is commodity prices, which tend to move together, are a big component of farmland returns. If you look at the S&P GSEI Agriculture Total Return Index, over the past decade, it has returned negative 6.9% annualized. Negative. Over the past five years, it's returned 0.1%. And then over the past three years, about 2.5% annualized. If we're going to see agriculture products increase and farmland increase over time, there needs to be more demand for farm products. And that has to be from people eating. It's not like there can be an additional use. Biofuels was an additional use, but ultimately it comes down to what are people eating? And will they be eating more or will the mix change? Farming has benefited from huge productivity increases over time. Yields are increasing due to better tractors, GPS, better fertilizer technology. And as a result, there is less farm land because it's not needed. And it's impacted the price of agriculture products. If we look at the real price of commodities of agriculture since 1900, it's been negative. On a real basis, Over that long stretch of time, agricultural products have gotten cheaper because farmers and farms are more efficient and are increasing their productivity more than the demand for the crops. That's not true for oil and energy. That has had a positive real return going back to 1900. So have precious metals. Industrial metals have been about the same, but agriculture has seen the real prices fall. Here's what the USDA says. With U.S. agriculture output growing faster than domestic demand for many products, U.S. farmers and agricultural firms have been relying on export markets to sustain prices and revenues. They're having to export more and more. And when you export, you're competing against farmers around the world. If you look at some of the charts and data on U.S. agriculture growth, the output has grown steadily and it has needed less inputs. The number of farms is shrinking and the amount of farmland is shrinking, but not the amount of output. Way more productive. The OECD had a meeting back in 2016 of agriculture ministers. They said demand remains subdued by the underperformance of the world economy and the fact that consumption of many products, in particular food staples, is close to saturation points in parts of the world. They said on the demand side, continued but slowing population growth, rising per capita incomes and urbanization will increase the demand for food and prompt consumers to diversify their diets by increasing consumption 
of animal proteins relative to starches. For this reason, the price of meat and dairy products are expected to increase relative to the price of crops. The amount of farmland is shrinking in the U.S. because productivity is increasing. So I don't agree with the statement that the shrinking number of farms and farmland and farmers is an example of a supply-demand imbalance. We can't say with a growing population and shrinking number of U.S. farmers, this law of supply and demand are clearly in favor of farmland investing. It doesn't work that way. It isn't the amount of land or the number of farms or the number of farmers. It's how much is being produced versus how much is being consumed. And farmers are really, really good at producing crops. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. If we look at the yield or the income U.S. farmland has achieved, again, looking at the NECRIF farmland index, the income yield was over 5% back in December 1999. Now, the trend has been down the entire time to where it's closer to 4%, cash yield. But again, it depends on the time period. I mentioned that farms overall, the cash income has actually declined over the past eight years. Overall, farmland returns in 2020 were around 3%. There have been crops that have done better. Pistachios. For example, 11% return in 2019, 13% in 2018, 3% 2017, 14% in 2016, 12% in 2015. I don't have the 2020 returns. Pistachio is one of the opportunities that shows up on some of these crowdfunding farmland sites. And they do a good job explaining the investment case for pistachios. I saw one presentation that showed that about 66% of U.S. pistachio production is exported. 
The U.S. is the leading producer, second to Iran. Pistachio consumption per capita is increasing in the U.S. And the California pistachio industry is launching campaigns promoting other uses for pistachios, including trying to get people to eat pistachios versus other nuts. The biggest risk then to farmland investing is what will be the price of the agriculture commodity and what will interest rates be because that will drive returns. Some other risk is weather. In 2020, over 4 million acres of ground burn in California and the Pacific Northwest. It had an impact on the wine industry. There was grapes that could not be harvested due to the smoke. The lack of sunlight in Washington and Oregon harmed many of the apple crops. Other risks of investing, particularly on these crowdfunding farmland platforms, is the platform risk. Will they remain in business because they're startups? They're venture capital funded. Acre Trader, for example, was only established in 2018. So they're new. It's a new platform. Another risk is the concentration of processors for the actual product. We saw this in timber. I Back in 2002, I led the effort at our firm to learn about the timber asset class to explore whether our clients should invest in timber. I spent a lot of time visiting timber farms and timber managers. And it was going to be this great returning asset class with expected returns of 9 to 10% per year. I visited some timber farms down in the U.S. South. One of the things that timber managers say that if the pricing is bad, you can store the returns on the stump because the trees keep growing, they get bigger, and then you'll be able to make more money. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal just a couple weeks ago titled, Lumber Prices Are Soaring. Why Are Tree Growers Miserable? Turns out there's way too much timber, trees in the South. Sawmills are running close to capacity due to pandemic restrictions, but there are so many trees that the sawmills are paying their lowest prices in decades. The article said that foresters and mill executives expect that even with mills sawing at capacity, it could be another decade, maybe two, before there's enough trees cut down to correct the supply-demand imbalance. Just too many trees. Part of it, again, even in the timber business, efficiency gains. The article mentioned that computerization of mills in the the management of timberland is producing 50% more wood than a generation ago. And the mills themselves have been calibrated for a specific size tree. If you've let the tree continue to grow and it's gotten too big, Historically, it's meant it's been of greater value because it was a bigger tree, but not in this case because the mill can't handle it, can't cut it for timber. So it's sold for paper and cardboard for much less money. All of these risks, and there's risk with every asset class, but we can't depend on, well, this asset class has had double-digit returns over the past three decades. We always have to look at what's going to drive those returns going forward. What does it take to be successful? And in the case of agriculture, there is not an excess of demand versus supply. This is not a fast-growing asset class. We've seen it in the last eight years. Incomes are down. The price of agricultural land is flat. And ultimately, as a farmland investor, there needs to be an exit strategy. 
who's going to buy the farm down the road? And will it be worth more than you paid today? It will only be worth more if agriculture products are higher, particularly whatever that farm happens to be. But somebody has to buy it. I looked at one institutional farmland investment firm, and they mentioned a potential exit strategy was selling their farms to some of these crowdfunding platforms. When you look at the platforms, make sure you understand the deal very closely. Read the documentation. They do a good job of due diligence. But there's much that they can't control. They just don't know. We don't know what agricultural prices will be. It's hard to make a case for another super cycle impacting crop prices. Perhaps if it's a niche product, pistachios, almonds, or something that there's less competition. But it's hard to feel confident that the returns will be more than 5 to 6%. Many of the the deals use leverage to try to magnify the return, but then you have the debt service cost. This is a conservative asset class in terms of return assumptions. It will not be hugely volatile, but the sheer efficiency of farming. And because world population growth is slowing, it's hard to make a bullish case for farmland investing, certainly not for double-digit returns. Mid-single digits is more likely. Another way to invest in farmland is through a farmland REIT, and I invested in Gladstone Land Corporation back in 2018. I did a plus episode on it. I liked that it was yielding 4%. It was liquid. They were focused on high-valued crops, pistachios, almonds, berries. They were growing. But if you look at the actual returns on a net asset value basis, Depending on the time period, the year-end net asset value was $12.23 per share. Back in 2012, it was $16.82 per share. So the value fell. In 2011, it was $11.20. So it's been a little volatile, the net asset value. But ultimately, it's been flat to down, which means all of the return is coming through the dividend yield, about a 3 to 4% return, just based on the net asset value. I actually got a 50% gain in my investment because the price of the stock per share increased 50% to where it was selling at a 50% premium to the net asset value, which is why I sold last week. Instead, I invested in the preferred shares of Gladstone. The common shares ticker is LAND. The preferred shares is LANDO. That's yielding just under 6%, much higher yield You don't participate in the growth, but there hasn't been any growth on the net asset value basis, even though the Flatstone is growing. They have more farms and more acreage than they've ever had. Yet because it's a REIT, they have to pay out the majority of the income to shareholders. So they're always having to either issue more stock, common or preferred, or borrow money. I think it's a great illustration of how difficult farmland investing is. So bottom line is farmland investing Make sure you understand the crop, understand the supply-demand dynamics, understand what the exit strategy is going to be, the debt levels, how are they going to be serviced, what are the fees. Many of the the farmland platforms charge an asset management fee of 1% per year. That's reasonable. Keep your expectations low because it doesn't appear that we're entering a commodities super cycle that will be positive for agriculture because there's nothing to drive it in terms of population growth. This is a diversifier, but it's a low-return 
diversifier. And perhaps another way to just invest in land is like I did, pure speculation. Buy a piece that you think over the long term that growth with suburbs or some other area, rural area, will increase the value because of it's a beautiful spot and people will ultimately recognize that. Maintenance is low, taxes are low, but the returns are uncertain. Likely not to fall in price if you buy at the right time, but it's a great way just to sort of store some of your wealth in case we get a period of high inflation that you don't have to spend a lot of time worrying about. That then is episode 334. Thanks for listening to the episode. There's two ways I can help you if you want to learn more about investing. First, consider signing up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. Each Wednesday when the podcast is released, I'll share with you the links to that week's episode, an essay on money, investing in the economy, and other valuable content. It's a great way to learn more about investing, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. If you'd like additional guidance in building out an investment portfolio, keeping track of investment conditions, please consider becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is a community of of over 1,000 investors that get access to professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to help them achieve their investment and financial goals. We'd love to have you as a member, and you can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.